Hi, this is Jonathan Armstrong from over here in the UK. Well done, Tom. Well done, Jay, on 200 episodes of This Week in FCPA. It's really good to have a roundup each week of the compliance news. And I'm not just saying that because every now and then you feature me. 200 is a spectacular achievement. And um, let's hope you have many more. We need some things the same whilst everything else is different around us. So well done, both of you. And here's to another 200. Cheers. This is Tom Fox. And as you know, Jay and I are celebrating our 200th show today. That was Jonathan Armstrong. And I hope you will enjoy the rest of this show. We're going to take a look at some coronavirus stories. We're going to take a look at the Compliance Week's finalists for Excellence in Compliance Awards. We're going to consider a moving tribute to Stanley Sporkin from Mike Volkoff and how beliefs impact mindset. The Compliance Podcast Network premiered a new podcast series this week, The Compliance Life. We'll talk about what was posted on the podcast Compliance and Coronavirus this week, as well as 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. I wanted to personally thank all of the listeners who have enjoyed us over the past four years. Jay and I have had a ton of fun bringing you this podcast. We look forward to you joining us for our next 200 episodes. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for a uber-duber special episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 200 for the week ending April 10, 2020, the 200th episode edition. Jay, what do you think of my uber-clever title? I think you must have been working all day and all night on that one, huh? Indeed, indeed. So, uh, Jay, we had the passing of several uh, significant people this past week. For me, the biggest was John Prine. So I want to talk about that perhaps. But um, we had a lot of compliance this week, too. So uh, you want to just jump right into it? Let's do it. Tell us what our good friend and colleague Mike Volkov is thinking about on his corruption, crime and compliance blog. So, um, Mike... um, I think we reported last week that Stanley Sporkin had died, and he was a personal mentor to Mike. And so Mike wrote a pretty moving tribute to Judge Sporkin in a two-part series. In part one, he talked about Judge Sporkin's uh, discovery that U.S. companies that were engaging in bribery and corruption and not reporting it, uh, and he was the uh, grandfather of the uh, FCPA. Um, as he testified before Congress, Judge Sporkin said that when he was then the head of Director of Enforcement at the SEC, I was amazed that there was no requirement that publicly traded companies maintain honest books and records. My research of various laws did reveal that such a books and records requirement was included in the laws governing the nation's financial institutions. It occurred to me that if such a requirement was good enough for the nation's brokerage and banking institutions, why not for its industrial concerns? So we... um, we had uh, Judge Sporkin really leading the effort to pass the FCPA. And part two is much more personal, where 
Uh, Mike talked about trying a gang case, the Fern Street crew gang prosecution case in front of George Judge Sporkin and some of the highlights from that case, how intense it was, and uh, really just a great tribute by Mike uh, to uh, someone who was uh, a mentor, a colleague, and a good friend. So as always, we link to all of these in the show notes, and I commend you to uh, to read Mike's two-part tribute. Great. Uh, next up, we have a piece that comes to us from the Corporate Compliance Insight blog, and it's written by Dr. Linda Henman, and it's, the piece is entitled, How Beliefs Affect Mindset. Every decision starts with a belief. That is, we base our decisions on what we know to be true and what we believe. And Dr. Linda Henman writes, sometimes, however, we believe something that isn't true. When we fail to examine our beliefs and bring them to the conscious level, we run the risk that we will continue to base decisions on false and inaccurate points. So what can you do to disrupt your own belief system? Number one, kill your sacred cows. Sanford uh, psychologist Lee Ross noted that people have a systemic or systematic tendency to ignore the situational forces that shape behavior. He called it the fundamental attribution error. The error comes from our inclination to attribute our behavior to, quote, the way I am instead of the situation I've in. So in the first step, you should create new situations instead of creating an uphill battle for yourself every day. Create a steep downhill slope and give yourself a push. Second one is coming up with new habits. Uh, there was a gentleman that Dr. Henman was working with on a consulting basis. His name was Pete, and every morning he opened an email the first thing, and he immediately felt anxiety. So the first thing out of the gate, Pete felt overwhelmed. Pete said, it's just the way I am, but Linda asked him to change the situation and deconstruct success that he had previously. In other words, he took control and changed the situation. Another way to fix things is to reduce cognitive dissonance. Um, and the last thing here is to look at how negativity, negativity instinct causes us to mo- notice more good than bad. There are three things going on here. First, the misremembering of the past, often making it the good old days when it wasn't. Second, the feeling that as long as things are bad, it's heartless to say they're getting better. And three, our bombardment by negative news. When is the last time somebody reported that airline flights didn't crash, yet when a plane does crash, it stays in the headlines for weeks? When people wrongly believe that nothing is improving, they may conclude that nothing they have tried so far works and lose confidence in the things that actually do work. So a timely blog with what is happening around us with all the bad news about coronavirus. Uh, Tom, next up... uh, what, what do you've got on your list now? So we've got a couple of uh, articles about coronavirus. Uh, we wanted to have both coronavirus and non-coronavirus stories in this episode. Uh, the first comes from the DNO Diary. Kevin LaCour is always great blog post where he has a guest post from um, – it talks about the board's role in 
uh, coronavirus crisis, and and he lays out some of the law. Obviously, Caremark, Marshawn, and Enrique Clovis Oncology are the key cases, but he gives some uh, key considerations for the board and to assess risks in the current environment, including health and safety, review and consider public disclosures and earning guidance, evaluate and stress test liquidity profiles. I can't emphasize that enough. Debt and equity repurchase considerations, both from the shareholder perspective, the company perspective, and the reputational perspective. Conduct a vulnerable vulnerability assessment and consider potential mitigation steps and re- review DNO uh, insurance. And lastly, don't forget to look for potential business opportunities. Now, these are all from the board perspective, so it's much more oversight, but I found these thoughts uh, very good and something that uh, every board needs to take into account. Second up, Jay, from over from the FCPA blog, Mark Bone and Karen Johnson at uh, VF um, wrote a really interesting and useful, I thought, uh, playbook at VF Corporation on some of the things they're doing uh, at their company. And uh, it's really five points. Uh, Some are common sense, but it never hurts to be reminded of common sense, particularly in a crisis. Number one, take a people-first approach. Two, proactively consider how the crisis may affect your company's current risk exposure. In other words, risk monitor and reassess. Um, Three, assessing and realigning priorities as necessary. Nimbleness and agility are going to be critical for a company to not only succeed and thrive in the age of coronavirus. Four, create updated communications plan for COVID-19. We hit on that a little bit with the board, uh, the board's role, uh, because clearly if you're a public company, you're going to have to have a communication plan. But that's more than simply uh, as required by the market. You're going to have to have a communication plan to your employees, to your stakeholders, to your local community, to your third parties, to your supply chain, and communication back from them. And finally, and most importantly, think outside the box, adapt and restructure processes to facilitate risk mitigation. What was a risk March 1, March 15, March 30 may be a different risk today on uh, April 10th. So, be ready to adapt, be ready to restructure, and uh, engage in risk mitigation efforts. Jay, what do you have for us? So uh, next, we're back to the FCPA blog again. Uh, this comes to us from an attorney over at DLA Piper, Jason Chang, and he offers a framework for enhanced due diligence of Chinese medical suppliers during the COVID-19 emergencies. Millions of units of medical supplies and PPE, personal protective equipment, are flooding into the United States from China. Recently, a commercial aircraft delivered 80 tons of PPE and other medical supplies from Shanghai to New York, and now there are more than 20 flights scheduled to do the same. The Chinese government and many state-owned enterprises are supplying these critical medical supplies and PPE to the United States when we need it. These efforts, though, are not without risk. It's important that healthcare facilities mitigate Chinese supplier risk, and here's some ways to do that. In terms of the legal and regulatory perspective, first of all, quality and safety. Defective contaminated secondhand or reused products that do not adhere to FDA regulations and standards uh, are unauthorized. 
In terms of price gouging, global surge in need of medical supplies and PPE has created a spike in the middleman and agents seeking to charge exorbitant prices. In terms of corruption and bribery, potential kickbacks, rebate arrangements, inappropriate commissions, under-the-table payments to government officials and family members, and finally, fraud prevention, tax evasion, and money laundering. There is potential involvement and questionable payments to offshore third-party entities, unconventional invoicing techniques to evade paying taxes. So here's the framework he suggests for using to mitigate risks. Number one, collect supplier information. Verify that a company is qualified and in good standing. Number two, ask difficult questions up front. Request that suppliers respond to a series of third-party intake questions. This is typically done by having the supplier fill out a supplier questionnaire. Number three, background and reputational search. Conduct desktop research and suppliers as well as related individuals and entities. And finally, in terms of identity and escalation of red flags, utilize due diligence to measure the level of risk for engaging the proposed transaction and identify any potential red flags. These are examples of key issues which compromise a significant effort which likely needs to be accomplished in a very short time. By carefully reviewing the supplier agreement in terms and conducting one or more of the due diligence processes such as those outlined, many of the above issues could be mitigated. So as always, it's a great article and we do link to it in our show notes. This is Mary Shirley from the Great Women in Compliance podcast. I love this week in FCPA because my dear friends and colleagues, Tom Fox and Jay Rosen, are perfectly placed to keep us up to date on this topic. Tom is a leading authority in FCPA matters, and I love his dissection of cases. Jay is an incredible force, being a salesperson in terms of his core duty, but so committed to the technical skills and knowledge of our practice area that he is undeniably the most clued up on compliance in the vendor sales world. And of course, that allows him to bring different perspectives uh, to the, the traditional views that we as compliance practitioners may make. Jay and Tom, love you long time and big congratulations on this momentous milestone. Tom, next up, what's Jonathan Rausch thinking about in dipping through geometries? Jay, as you know, Jonathan Rausch writes on a really wide variety and perhaps is as, as eclectic as anyone is in the blogging world around compliance issues. Uh, he wrote a blog post about the FINMA annual report, and the FINMA is the Swiss Financial Market Supervisory Authority. Obviously, focused on Swiss companies, and it has a lot of statistics. Um, but buried in it are six principles for supervised institutions in Switzerland to look at. And I thought it was a really good list for the anti-corruption compliance specialist to consider, because it's not things we typically look at. So, uh, how are the these risks? being assessed and managed in your organization. Low interest rate loan environment. Two, a possible correction on uh, the money lending market. And I would add now, particularly in the light of uh, corona crisis. Three, cyber attacks. Four, the disorderly abolition of LIBOR benchmark interest rates. Jay, the LIBOR benchmark interest rate was routinely used in every commercial contract I was involved in. And if you can't use that rate 
to set a wide variety of benchmarks, what are you going to use in its place? Five, obviously money laundering uh, is a key consideration for FINMA, but also for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner. And six, cross-border market access. Uh, What's going to happen to the EU? What's going to happen to Europe? What's going to happen to the United Kingdom? What's going to happen to the United States uh, with its relationships? And now overlay coronavirus on top of that. What does that mean? Uh, I think I read yet again today the Trump administration is uh, putting on new sanctions and they are putting on uh, new requirements around uh, telephone or rather uh, smartphones. So in a wide variety of uh, areas that may not have had as much scrutiny before, we're getting a lot more scrutiny in uh, market access. So that's uh, a risk which could certainly lead to uh, corruption concerns. So this one is uh, this might be my my favorite story that we're looking at during the week. And uh, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do it uh justice, but it comes to us from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, and his Radical Compliance blog. And then you and Matt both took a deep dive into compliance into the weeds. And uh, on Radical Compliance, Matt says, when COVIDiacy strikes corporate governance. For several weeks now, uh, Matt has been spotlighting good practices in corporate governance and compliance during the crisis. But today he flips the script to call out some stupendously inept corporate behavior in these difficult times. So everyone say hello to the Boston Sports Club. BSC is one of the upscale urban fitness chains. You probably have them in your city. Its corporate owner is an entity called Town Sports International, TSI, which is based in New York City. Well, here's what happened on March 15th. Governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, ordered all non-essential businesses to close the following day. So March 16th, BSC closed all 31 locations. Then came the question of membership fees. BSC charges its members anywhere from $30 to $100 per month, depending on what services they buy. When the gym chain closed its doors, members started asking about how to freeze or cancel those memberships. As recounted in an article on Boston.com, BSC had a policy on its website that members could suspend or cancel their membership fees, quote, in person. But this became pretty hard to do since all the chain's locations were closed. Members complained on social media and to the state attorney general, Maura Healy, Healy said the members were entitled to cancellations and refunds of unused fees according to the state consumer protection laws. BSC members tried to call the gym. They were routed to a voicemail hell with no answer. They tried calling only to receive auto responses that someone would follow up. Finally, on March 26, Town Sports CEO Patrick Walsh sent a general email saying that the company would handle all of your concerns. Matt goes on to talk about how poorly run this corporation is, how it's in such a bad shape, and takes a look at some of the FINRA concerns in terms of what broker-dealers could be potentially facing during the COVID crisis. So uh, as he wraps up at the end, he says, let's look closely at BSC's parent company. Town Sports International operates 186 gyms, and 2019 had 466 million in revenue. Even better yet, 
They fired their CFO on March 23rd, and its audit committee chairman quit on March 19th. According to the SEC filings, both events were not due to any disagreement with the company. Meaningful if you look at the company's balance sheet, Town Sports has $32.8 million in assets and Gulp $328 million in current liabilities, including $178 million in debt due this year. The bottom line is this, Town Sports International was financially overextended in the best of times, and COVID-19 has shoved it into the worst. So the company is engaged in this corporate policy chicanery to keep customers cash in its coffers, and those customers have returned fire by roasting BSC's reputation on social media. So uh, a real recipe of not what to do in times like these. Jay, uh, Compliance Week has its annual or rather first annual Excellence in Compliance Awards, and they named uh, multiple finalists this year. Uh, We're not going to go through each uh, finalist, but I'll read off the categories, Excellence in Compliance Anti-Corruption, Excellence in Cybersecurity, Data Privacy, Third-Party Risk Management, and Training and also uh, CCO of the Year, uh, Compliance Innovator of the Year. And there I have to throw out a big shout-out and love to uh, Lisa Fine and Mary Kelly, excuse me, Mary Shirley, for the uh, uh, Great Women in Compliance series. They're nominated, co-nominated, Rising Stars in Compliance, Compliance Mentor of the Year. The Compliance Week has announced two winners that I do want to acknowledge, Jay, on the Compliance Comeback of the Year, Joshua Drew of Vion uh, was its inaugural winner uh, of this award after he successfully navigated Vion through to the recent conclusion after his three-year compliance monitorship and deferred prosecution agreement. But I am so proud. I am so pleased. And frankly, I am honored uh, that Carrie Penman was named uh, as the Lifetime Achievement and Compliance winner. Carrie is well known to the compliance uh, profession. She uh, is a CCO at uh, Navex Global. Uh, Carrie uh, writes, speaks, and if anybody lives uh, the CCO role uh, that I know, it's Carrie Penman. I've been privileged to be her friend for many years. Uh, she's a good friend. She's a great colleague. She's a great colleague to everyone in the compliance profession. Uh, she's a mentor to many people in the compliance um, uh, community. So uh, as I wrote uh, yesterday, she was the obvious choice, and I can't think of anyone who deserves this award more than uh, Carrie for the uh, inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award in Compliance by Compliance Week. So uh, kudos to Dave LaFort and uh, his team over at Compliance Week for creating these awards, and uh, kudos to all the nominees, and then double kudos to uh, uh, Joshua Drew and uh, my good friend Carrie Penman. Well done to all the nominees. Congratulations, Carrie. Congratulations, Josh. Uh, next up, we're going to bop back to Kevin LaCroix again in um, his DNO diary. This article comes from April 5th, 2020, uh, Coronavirus and DNO Insurance, an interim update. Uh, when the fir- first coronavirus-related posts were written about a month ago, there were a number of confirmed cases of deaths. And that has soared. Much of the company is now on lockdown, school, work, and businesses, so much of the basic social fabric. There have been uh, claims both in underwriting developments and a number of trends that have emerged. Uh, First of all, 
Kevin decided that he would make comparisons in terms of how things would end up with our situation with COVID and take a look at how things happened back in 2008 during the financial crisis. He said claims that we shall see are likely to involve the alleged disclosure allegations and mismanagement allegations and insolvency-related claims. As panelists discussed in the recent Professional Liability Underwriting Society, do you know um, at this time the point they point that insolvency-related claims seem the most likely. Businesses shuttered by government stay-at-home orders are struggling as are companies dealing with economic and business fallout from the pandemic's disruptive effects. As companies seek protection, the likelihood is that trustee and creditor claims will follow. While bankruptcy claims seem most likely, there will undoubtedly be other DNO claims as well. Uh, Kevin was asked whether he thought there would be fewer, the same number, or more numbers of co coronavirus-related DNO claims as there were in the wake of the global financial crisis in 2008. He thought that there would be fewer claims now, and his logic at the time was because coronavirus came out of the blue, so to speak, and plaintiff's lawyers will have a much harder time than they did after a financial crisis reaching back to the past. There's two reasons why Kevin feels this way. Number one, he said that the financial crisis-related claims versus the coronavirus-related claims would play out over a long period of time, perhaps as much as 36 to 48 months, as companies make statements about their ability to bounce back. Second, the number and scope of coronavirus-related claims will depend in significant measure on the bankruptcy-related claims. There could be a significant number of bankruptcy claims. He further reflected on his prior answer and said one further condition or consideration has occurred that may affect the ultimate scope and number of Cronus-related claims. The financial crisis-related claims were largely concentrated in the financial and real estate sector as those were the hardest hit, but it occurs to Kevin that the coronavirus-related claims may not be as con concentrated as the disruption from coronavirus. Uh, when you look at the companies and the types of industries that have been affected, airlines, hotels, restaurants, cruise lines, casinos, movie theaters, oil and gas businesses, this massive slowdown to which we are now eventually en now entering eventually will cut across the entire economy. He does potentially see a silver lining, that there may be uh, a silver lining here when it comes to the numbers of claims filings and that at least over the next few months. As the disruption in final mar financial markets continues over the coming weeks and months, M&A activity and the number of IPOs will be suppressed. And M&A and IPO activities were important contributors to lawsuit filings back in 2008. One final claims-related thought has to do with the likely consequence if, in fact, bankruptcy's claims do not materialize in scale. If these claims do materialize, the side A coverage in bankrupt companies' DNO insurance programs, which would prove to be particularly important. Uh, so there's, it's a very in-depth article. This is something that uh, Kevin uh, eats, sleeps, and breathes, and uh, we're happy that we can uh, share his expertise with you. Uh, next up, Tom, uh, what's happening on Risk Compliance Platform Europe? 
Jay, we had an article by a gentleman named Hassan Habib, who works at Scotiabank as an AML analyst. And he wrote a, a good article that I think was a great review for uh, not only the AML compliance practitioner, but the anti-corruption compliance practitioner entitled Confronting Invisible, Invisible Aggregators, Aggressors, rather, in a Changing Landscape. And he goes through some of the, uh, the basics around um, – data protection as well, and how uh, the bad guys are really using the coronavirus scandal to uh, engage in fraud with things like phishing emails, with malicious links claiming to be from the World Health Organization, miracle product claims, online retail fraud, accusations of price gouging, um, and a wide variety of others. it gives some of the things that uh, companies should do, obviously background checks, don't click links or open email attachments from unknown or unverified uh, sources, beware of uh, unsolicited emails offering information or supplies or treatment for COVID-19, check addresses and websites. And any um in a separate paragraph, he talked about the three stages of customer due diligence. And I wanted just to repeat this for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner because I thought it was a good review. So in customer due diligence, it's clients identification, which is information gathering, risk assessment, and verification, which is evidence gathering. And if you think about that in terms of your uh, process for third parties, it really makes a lot of sense. So I thought it was a good review. It's certainly a good reminder for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner of uh, the steps to take or not take. And probably every employee needs to be uh, reminded of the data protection issues uh, involved in this. So Tom, with the onset of the coronavirus last month, you debuted with a new um, podcast called Compliance and Coronavirus. Uh, can you highlight some of the conversations you had this week? Right, Jay. So this podcast is designed to bring clarity and sanity to the compliance practitioner around coronavirus crisis and COVID-19. This week I had, uh, I've had four uh, podcasts. Typically it's three, but I had Peter Ayer, um, partner uh, at Kroll, um, who has put together one of the best resources around all of the regulations relating to coronavirus. So in terms of what states have ordered shutdowns, what counties have ordered shutdowns, what cities have ordered shutdowns, what are the rules about travel, all of these things. And they've aggregated those and put on their firm website, which I link to in the show notes. Your colleague, Eric Feldman, talked to us about the importance of culture assessments during the coronavirus crisis and how you can do a culture assessment uh, from a a remote location. Uh, Mike Tricaski from Exeger, the founder of Exeger, talked about why coronavirus is truly a crisis. And Mike compared it to, or Mike actually said, it is the biggest crisis the United States has faced since World War II. So um, he was very stark about the crisis for every person in America. And then uh, finally, I had a special episode this week with uh, the aforementioned Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley of Great Women in Compliance, where they had just sat down and ruminated on what the coronavirus crisis has meant for them both uh, personally and professionally. Uh, Mary's got uh, a very compelling story. She's uh, 
basically quarantined in New Zealand, uh, awaiting an opportunity to have a uh, interview at a U.S. consulate to get her visa renewed. So uh, it's a, it was a great discussion, and I know uh, you'll enjoy it. Um, Jay, I also premiered another podcast series this week, and this is one I really wanted to do for some time. It was a lot of fun, and it's going to be a lot of fun going forward. I entitled it The Compliance Life, and it's about sitting in the CCO role. How did you get there? What did you do when you're there? What are some of your key challenges? What's new or different and what's unusual? Uh, what I'm going to do is each month I'm going to focus on one CCO. So I'm going to have four episodes, one a week, and this uh premiere month and uh, premiered this week was Russ Berlin, the CCO at Aventive Technologies. And we started off with uh, pizza and compliance. Uh, Russ is a strong advocate, and I cannot use the word strong strongly enough about why pizza will lead to better compliance. So it's a great podcast series. It's a lot of fun, uh, really informal, but some great information. And finally, Jay, I'm continuing my 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. This month, it's Continuous Improvement, I should know, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Monday, I talked about designing a process for continuous improvement. Tuesday, the auditing of third parties. Wednesday, continuous improvement and compliance. Thursday, the compliance audit. And Friday, supply chain audit. So uh, if you're interested in... um, The Nuts and Balls of Compliance, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program is the podcast series for you. So we're always talking about numbers, Tom, 31 days. Uh, What does the number 200 mean to you? So, Jay, this is the 200th show of this week in FCPA, and it's been a ton of fun, learned a lot. I would say... uh, the uh, the thing I was thinking about uh, in preparation and ruminating about our uh, show is a couple of different things. One, we started off uh, more news focused, so we still have news in this case, but now we we are really reviewing some of the top commentary of uh, other compliance practitioners literally from across the globe. Uh, We had the Risk and Compliance Journal from Europe. Um, Jonathan Rausch talked about the Swiss uh, financial uh, authorities uh, report. And, you know, we have everything in between. Uh, We've got great commentators literally across the world. So uh, that's been a lot of fun. It's been a great learning experience for me. But there's one other thing that has been my observation, and frankly, that's about you. Uh, When we started this podcast, uh, you were much the junior partner, and uh, I have watched you grow, and I've watched you grow professionally. I've watched you grow within this role, and you're no longer a junior partner. You're a full-fledged partner, and the work you have done in the compliance community has expanded and made you a much more valuable resource for not simply affiliated monitors, but also for the greater compliance community, your series, series is, sorry, my Texan won't let me say that correctly. Your series is on, uh, at uh, CCI corporate compliance insights on monitorships has been great. Uh, some of the other work you've done has been great and it's really added, I think a whole new level. Uh, and I've watched and listened to you grow and gain greater confidence in your role as a compliance professional and, you know, not a BD guy. So that's been a, a lot of fun for me too. 
Well, thank you, Tom. I couldn't have done it without you. And I, I still remember having a conversation with Rebecca. And um, I said, uh, Rebecca, uh, Tom Fox says uh, I'm going to do a podcast with him called This Week in the FCPA. And she said, well, then you better do it. It's Tom Fox. And uh, like you said, uh, I was just thinking back and, you know, earlier this year, um, we had moved to a new school system. So the kids were in public school. And I always remembered on Thursday that our taping time used to conflict with when they would get out of school. So I had to, like, get there early and be the first parent in line and pick them up so we could get back and I could make my two o'clock taping time. Uh, unfortunately, right now, we don't have any issues with making that time because we've got nothing but time right now. But, uh, you know, to Tom's uh, other point about the the focus and the breadth of commentators, we have our good colleague, um, Jonathan Armstrong, who is our GDPR person uh, across the pond. Uh, we normally have the opportunities to interact with compliance professionals uh, who, although they live all over the globe, we should get to meet up with them in D.C. or Florida or Texas. So I think one of the hardest things over the last five to six weeks is just really been homebound. And I know I've been taking it upon myself just to ping people on LinkedIn and make sure they're OK or to attend a webinar. Or I even had a, a virtual tequila tasting the other night with a colleague of mine. So uh uh, it's great to see that this community uh, supports each other. Um, and for the little bit that we're able to do when we spend time with you uh, on a podcast or every week, um, we appreciate you listening in. We're, we're here commentating, but without you listening, there really wouldn't be much for us to do. So thank you for uh, being part of this success of 200 episodes as well. So, Jay, uh, I would just end with, from my perspective, where the next 200 episodes are going to take us. So on behalf of Tom Fox, who's both the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 200 for the week ending April 10th, 2020, the 200th episode edition. Uh, we hope and pray that your families are healthy and well, and we'll see you next week for number 201. Hello, Tom and Jay. This is Matt Kelly from Radical Compliance. Congratulations on 200 episodes of This Week in FCPA. I listen to it every week, usually Saturday afternoons while I'm cleaning my house. It's a great opportunity to let it play in the background and let me hear everything else I may have missed that week and then file away for uh, future thought and a lot of what I hear on the podcast, I wind up writing about myself sometime later on in the future. Great resource. I hope you guys have another 200 episodes in due course. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would thank you for listening to this special 200th anniversary edition of This Week in FCPA. Frankly, Jay and I could not have done this without our audience and listeners, and we greatly appreciate all the comments and questions that you have sent to us over the years. It's been a ton of fun. I've learned a lot, and I hope you have as well. A special thanks to Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Mary Shirley for their incredibly kind words, which we have uh, embedded in this podcast as well. I hope you will plan to join Jay and I for episode 201 next week. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. 
and we'll talk to you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.